Amen. Man, Daniel and worship crew, thank you so much. Uh, in first service and in this service, the phrase, in the highest place be lifted higher still, um, has been a cry for me. So I, I don't know where Jesus situates in your life right now. Um, I hope it's very high. Um, and, and, and I hope uh, just even singing that together um, is an opportunity to see him exalted higher still. Songs are really important in that way. Um, we have a, a song with Redeemer Student Ministry that um, somehow, uh, I don't know how a song becomes an anthem, but I just know it's happened um, in a lot of ways. And uh, when we don't sing it, students come up to me and ask, why didn't we sing it? And when we do, it seems like the Lord meets us there in a really powerful way, and, and we just love uh, singing it out together. And it goes, here I stand Desperate for your fire, it's your power, God, I know, is made perfect in my weakness. So set my faith ablaze and let your heart become my own. Let me see with heaven's eyes. And for some reason in the last couple of years as we've shouted out, it's your power, I know, made perfect in my weakness. That's felt like um, sort of the theme of Redeemer Student Ministry since I've been here. We had that um, incredible uh, 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 ordination service last night, and it was such a blessing to me. If you were able to come to that, I appreciate that a ton, Kara, and I feel very much sent by this church. Um, uh, we, we feel your love for us, your support of us, um, and that's, uh, that's not something that I, I want to take for granted by any stretch of the imagination. It's also not lost on me that Micah gave me a charge last night to preach the word. Um, and it's right that he gave me that charge. And um, as he has in many other circumstances, and as you guys have made possible for me, um, as you've called me up to things and had expectations for me um, and responsibilities for me as a pastor in this church, you have uh, uh, given me charges like preach the word. But you've also given me opportunities to to actually do that, and, and so uh, I appreciate Micah the chance to preach the word this morning, and that's what I want to do. So if you'll open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 9 and go to verse 10, and here's the connection. I didn't want, um, it's your power I know made perfect in my weakness, um, to just sit as a theme um, over Redeemer Student Ministry in my time uh, here and working with kids as well um, without really dissecting what the heck that means. Um, and, and so it's scriptural, it's biblical, um, it, it's, it's heavy in some ways, but I, I think it's beautiful. And so this morning I, I wanted to dissect that passage, and if you will, just read with me, um, and then uh, we'll pray and we'll dive straight into the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse Nine. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, 
I am content with my weaknesses, with my insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You guys pray with me. Lord, our weaknesses are ever before us, whether that's physical weakness, whether that's spiritual weakness in this room right now, whether it's emotional weakness, whether it's the discomfort felt and even just sitting in a room with this many people, a social weakness. I I don't know what it is, um, but our weaknesses are ever before us. Lord, the power of your gospel is that it's in our weaknesses that your power is made perfect. And so the passage this morning requires us to own our weaknesses, to be about your power and your glory through what for us feels like powerlessness and glorylessness. Lord, I pray to that end this morning, would you remove barriers of attitude, remove distraction that would keep us from hearing what you would say really clearly from your very word this morning. Helps to treasure you, to lift you high and higher still as we read your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 2 Corinthians comes to us in this particular context in Corinth or Corinth, I don't, I've never really fully known how to say where we live. Um, it, it comes to us here in this place, a, a vibrant, growing, opportunistic uh, community, but in, in a lot of ways materialistic, um, in a lot of ways self-centered, individu- individualistic city, and, and, and honestly, that's much like first century Corinth. It might be the most obvious of ironies that our city and this first century Greco-Roman city uh, share more than just a name. Let me unpack a little bit of what Corinth looked like. Now the Corinthian church is a whole other mess, um, but the first century, that city, the culture, the environment there um, was probably welcoming. It was hospitable. It was a place where, yeah, people feel, felt like they wanted to be a part of what was going on. A lot of people had maybe some shallow roots in that community. It was kind of young in that way. There were a lot of homes, There were a lot of really nice homes. And yet in that, a lot of people really prided themselves on their their wealth. But there was this sense of like, oh yeah, but like I worked for it. Like I worked for what I had. I did this by my own merits. And and, and a lot of people really did. There was a a large community of uh, what they called freedmen. Like these were former slaves, a lot of people that gathered around Corinth and that city. It was uh, vibrant. It was a place of of opportunity. And and there was a sense that I got this um, not because of my inheritance or my family honor or things being passed down to me, but because of uh, who I am and what I've done. You got what you got in spite of your family honor or inheritance sometimes. And and the consequence of that, uh, unintended or intended, I I don't really fully know, but it seemed that historically in first century Corinth, and maybe there's some overlap here, that, um, that, that, that boasting was ingrained in part of the culture. Like this, this word boasting was something that like um, as people would say that word in first century Greco-Roman world, uh, people would relate immediately to Corinth. And, and when they thought Corinth, they thought boasting, right? 
It's a, a part of the culture there, and it had layers. It was like, look what I got. And you'd get uh, examples of people going out in public squares and like literally counting their money. Here it would be like some sort of a flex on social media, I guess, maybe. But then under that was like this subtext, like, well, I'm doing it right. You're not doing it right, right? Like if, if you would do things like me, you would have the things that I have. And then maybe even a subtext of that subtext would be, well, let, let me tell you um, how I got it, how I did things right. And then maybe even a, a layer below that is, um, well, here, let me show you. And so even it seems like there's virtue in it, but it's boasting at the core of it. And you go... Grant, I think you entirely missed that one, missed um, an assessment of our culture, and maybe that's right. Um, but let, let's look at some reasons why someone may boast. I bet we can find a little bit of overlap to first century Corinth and, and our context. I think there's two main reasons why people boast. Number one, they genuinely think that you're better than someone else. Now see, everybody who is a Texan in this room, I got all of y'all on that one. Okay, right out the gate, um, it became abundantly clear that Texans were convinced that they were better than everyone else. And I will give you, you're better than most. Um, but I'm going to Louisiana because I think that that's better. There's a genuine, <laughs> there's a genuine uh, 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 feeling, a sense that you're better than someone else. You might actually be. I remember Trey, I grew up playing basketball with in high school, in gym class. We'd play pickup basketball games, and, and he boasted louder than everybody else. And here's the thing, Trey was better than all of us, but he was very vocal about it. I, I think that's one reason. There's a genuine belief that you think that you're better than somebody else. I, I think that's the first reason for boasting. Yet The second reason for boasting, though, is you're covering up an insecurity, Right? The second reason for boasting is, is I can't let somebody see my weaknesses. So I need to suppress those and keep them um, in the back while I magnify and amplify my strengths or what perceived strengths at least I have um, so that that is so loud that you don't actually see what, what I actually perceive as my own weaknesses. I'm going to keep those hidden. I'm going to keep those back in here behind. And here's the challenge for the gospel and as, as a Christian in this type of environment. It's twofold as well, and it flips like a mirror to those two points. The first is that we genuinely believe as Christians that we have access to the best way to live. Like we genuinely are convinced that this gospel is the best news this world has ever seen. We genuinely believe that following Jesus is the best pursuit in this life. We genuinely believe that we have, in light of the gospel, something greater, like we just sang. Not even something great, but the best. Lifted high, higher still. But then, secondly, we as Christians acknowledge that it's only through our acknowledging of our weaknesses that God's power, not our own, that God's power is going to be magnified and amplified and that his strength is going to be shown. 
And so at this point, I'm not in it for me and protecting uh, my own insecurities or for boasting and uh, demonstrating my strengths, but I'm, I'm in it for God and to amplify and magnify Him. You see, the tension, the authority of our message Right? And the primacy of that uh, tied with our own weaknesses and lived experiences as those who are not the best. Right? And so Paul in 2 Corinthians gets to this point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, he says, If I must boast, then I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. If I'm, if I'm going to boast, Corinthians, if I'm going to participate in the games that you're playing, I, I'm going to boast of the things that demonstrate my weakness. I'm going to brag about the things that don't make much of Paul, but make much of Christ. And he does that. You can read 2 Corinthians. It's crazy. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by snakes and he was beaten. And he owns all of this stuff. So then the question is, like, Paul, how is it that you focus on your weaknesses yet demonstrate that this message has any measure of authority? That was the challenge of 2 Corinthians here. There was these super apostles that were coming in and doubting Paul's authority of his message. Look at him. He's snake-bitten. He's shipwrecked. He's been beaten. Do you want to live like that? These other teachers came in and said, don't go the route that Paul is preaching of this true gospel uh, of Christ, but instead here we're going to add other layers to this on how to live and how to navigate this life, and, and there's strength and there's boasting to be found in this relationship with Christ, and Paul is saying, no, it's through weakness that I'm actually going to boast. And the question is, Paul, how do you carry on so much owning your own weaknesses and at the same time maintaining the authority of your message? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you maintain the authority of your message by owning your weaknesses? And so I think that there's in these two verses four ways that we maintain the authority of our message by owning our weaknesses. The first is open ears. Open ears. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God spoke into a moment, but I want to take a moment and just highlight what it is that God is speaking into. Paul actually goes into the game a little bit of boasting that happens. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, I must go on boasting. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, I want you to bear with me in a little foolishness. He's like, I'll stoop to their level. I'll boast a little bit about what's gone on in my life. But that is only to make a point of what's really worth boasting in. In the start of chapter 12, he says, I must go on boasting. There's nothing to be gained by boasting, but just to participate in their games, I'll I'll do that. I'll go on to talking about visions and revelations of the Lord, and he gives an example. I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, he was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Chapter 12, verse 4. And he heard things that can't be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will not, or I will boast. This is Paul, I think, autobiographically saying, 
There was a vision and a revelation where I met God and saw things so amazing in paradise that there's not even a space for me to, to utter and to talk about these things. I think he's, he's boasting a little bit there. But then look where he goes next. Verse 5, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from that so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, a lot of people have uh, made a lot of trying to discover what this thorn was. Was it a physical thorn, right? If it was a physical one, this term would be used in Old Testament context for something as big as a spear or maybe as small as a splinter. Was it an illustration to help represent maybe somebody who was uh, pestering him along the way? We don't know. I don't think it's important. But here's what's important. In verse 8, he says, three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times I begged God to take the thorn away. And here's the power in this. is verse 9. It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I think it's important as we're maintaining the authority of this message by owning our own weaknesses to say God is not silent in the midst of our weaknesses. He speaks in. Having open ears, hearing God is significant. Acknowledging that God isn't silent is significant. This thorn in the flesh, Paul begged, take it away three times. Now, I don't know if that was Paul begging three times and then God responding and Jesus responding, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't know if it went like that. I tend to think because I know how the word and how scripture uh, meets me in my own acknowledgement of weaknesses that it was the first time he begged God take it from me and it was probably God responding in that moment my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness and it was the second time God but I get it but take it away from me and it was probably God saying my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in your weakness and it was probably the third time of him going God take that from me and it was my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness and you probably heard it time and time again. And God speaks. And he speaks exactly what we need to hear. And each moment God speaks to Paul in that way, he's reminded, I can go on even with this thorn. God's grace is sufficient. So the first way that we maintain the authority of the message is by owning our weaknesses, by having open ears. The second way is by having open hearts. Having open hearts to receive grace. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in ways. My grace is sufficient for you. Isn't this thing all about grace? Christian, in this room, you remember this thing's all about grace, right? Like you remember that moment like when you were confronted with the reality of your own sin 
You remember that moment when you like were left to grapple with trying to figure out your life on your own? You remember that moment when it was like you couldn't occasion any peace or comfort or sense of sufficiency in the midst of your weaknesses? Christian, you, you, you remember this gospel? You remember seeing and treasuring Christ as being the one who laid it all out on the cross for you? You remember feeling the power of the grace of, of, of eternal life and new life that comes and grasping the resurrection like dead people don't come back to life. Jesus did and there's an opportunity for eternity now for us. Like You remember this thing's all about grace? Having an open heart to simply receive by faith this grace is at the core of the power of our message. The simplicity of our message of receive it by faith. It's grace through faith that we are saved not by works of our own. It's the simplicity of our message that we declare to everybody grace is available, receive it. I think we tend to put up a lot of theological walls and hoops for people to jump through before we give them first grace. It'd be like on a Tuesday night, every Tuesday night, when we go and distribute groceries at the church and there's a hungry little kid come up to the door, obvious that he's hungry, he's famished, needs food. And we'd say, well, you need to fill out this thing. Where are your parents? What do we, you know, we, uh, no. Like, we're not fumbling around in that moment. We see the need. We know the need. We identify the need. We can meet it. We have it. Take this food. We're not telling you how to cook it and prepare it. We'll figure out. We don't have a can opener. We'll bust it open. I don't care. Feed the kid. There's no hoops you have to jump through on this thing. Now, just a slight caveat on that. If he goes away, grows into the teenage years, and starts planning with his friends how to steal groceries from the grocery distribution, there's a direction we need to kind of nudge to get you back right, right? But we start with grace, right? We start with meeting the deepest need of people's souls, and that's to be saved. We start with grace. That's where the power of our message is. And, and Paul says that in those moments when he feels weakest, it's the reminder of the centrality of God's grace that he reminds him of. My grace is sufficient for you. On that road to Damascus, it was Paul's first time acknowledging God's grace was sufficient for him in the person of Jesus. And it was Every single time that he begged God to take that thorn away, it was the same message. God's grace is sufficient for you. Power is made perfect in weakness. The third way that we maintain the authority of this message by owning our weakness is through satisfied souls. Satisfied souls. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, content with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A satisfied soul 
there's a completed nature to this, to our message. There's a way that it's like, uh, it's done. It's, it's been finished. Jesus even says those words on the cross. And we still, endure, we still endure a lot of these things, but there's a completed nature to this. Like the example oftentimes given is like D-Day or if one day um, I hope I can play basketball with my daughter, she will definitely always be allowed to win, but I might just like, you know, kind of challenge her a little bit on that. But the outcome is sure and certain. Right? The outcome is sure and certain. There's a, a, a completed, a, a finality to this. In the Greek, it's telos to this. And there's three words that really shine out. And maybe one more that kind of slides in there. But sufficient, perfect, content. I think that the power of Christ may rest upon me is a part of that as well. Sufficient. His grace is enough. It's suffice. It's not more than we need. It's exactly what we need. It's plenty. We don't need to add anything to it. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is, uh, or his power is made perfect. That word perfect there is complete or finalized. There's an ending to it. It's perfect. Content, at peace, comfortable, okay. I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. This isn't easy. I understand that. But this is the posture of the believer. We sing another song in RSM that was another central one to us and it's just these little moments right when we declare and shout and sing out together your power is made perfect in my weakness but there's another one that says hands are lifted high hearts are awake to life and we sing together we are satisfied here with you here with you and I look up and I see the faces of middle schoolers and high schoolers and they say we're satisfied there's nowhere else we'd rather be there's no one else we rather want. And they say we're satisfied. Listen, in a world of boasting, in a world of boasting, there's a shortage of this. There's a shortage of feeling really comfortable with where we're at. There's a sense in which you're always trying to find the next thing. Even on my Instagram feed this week, I've come across this uh, new little gadget of some sort that's supposed to help you with your ADHD, which I have, and I wasn't even tempted in the slightest in that direction because I'm not seeking for something beyond what I have already got. It's not to say that other things can't help, but whenever we're always looking for the next thing to solve all of our problems, I think there ends up being a neglect of the contentment that Jesus has purchased for us in Christ. There's a shortage of this in this world. And in a world full of boasting, contentment is going to scream out like an air horn at a library. People are going to take notes. You're not going to be able to miss the fact that there's something different about you. The fourth way that we maintain the authority of the message by owning our weaknesses is by not just owning them, but actually boasting in our weaknesses. 
boasting in our weaknesses. Listen, Paul knew in this moment that his message was validated by the mess. My hope is that we would know that this message that we carry is validated by the mess. It's proven true by the uncomfort of things. It's not the polished and everything looking all put together that makes our message valid. No, it's the endurance through the weaknesses, the strength in the midst of weaknesses that makes our message valid, that makes it authoritative, that makes it something people have to reckon with. Our message is validated in the weaknesses, not in the strength. Look at it, verse 10. Our message is validated in the insults, not in the compliments. Our message is validated in the hardships, not in the comforts. Our message is validated in the persecutions, not in the acceptance. Our message is validated in the calamities, the disasters, not in the safety or security. It's because we endure through these things. It's because we reckon with the realities of our weaknesses that God's strength is revealed in us and we are strengthened. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Take, for example, Homeless Hank, Corporate Carl. Homeless Hank, he had an okay upbringing. Things were all right. In the house that he grew up in, he went on and had a family and everything seemed really right, but he had an operation and they gave him some pain pills. And as the pain of the operation subsided, the pain of not having those pills never did. And, and so he sought it out at every turn. He sought the pills from a pharmacy, sought the pills on the streets. Ultimately, it got to the point to where it was too much for his family to be able to endure it. He was harming physically, emotionally, his family, and ultimately lost what seemed like everything. But it's okay. He's reckoned with that now. He got into a program. He got involved in some real healthy steps to get things right. But every now and then there's a relapse. He gets back on the street. He stands on the median with a cardboard sign with a verse that's really meaningful to him. And he's content to have an opportunity to work doing anything that he can to keep up this shambles of life that he has and he, he wants to, to, to be able to continue on in the hopes of maybe one day he can get his family back. As he stands out there on a median, he notices every now and then that somebody that drives by at that stoplight with the window down rolls their window back up. Sometimes in a car full of teenagers, he sees them whisper and point. The insults hit hard. When it rains, it's not easy to stay dry. And there's not a lot of clothes on his back right now. And so 
it means that he has to be cold on those rainy days. He doesn't have an opportunity to step in and just get a job interview because he hasn't had a shower in a while. And on one stormy night, the tent that he stays in is blown away and it's disastrous. But in all of that, he acknowledges, I'm okay. It's unthought of. But this is Hank. Or consider corporate Carl. He did everything right, right? Like he... He walked through life and uh, he went off to college four years, boom, he's out of there. Went to business school uh, two years, got that taken care of. And he goes and gets a job, uh, sits at a cubicle and works his way up. He treats his coworkers right. He has a family, a good kind of uh, work-life balance on these things. But it seems like, though he's navigating everything right and caring for the people well around him, that he just can't seem in the eyes of the corporate system that he's in to really be doing things right. There's a, a cultural sensitivity training, which he wants to actively be a part of, handling that well and being sensitive to people around him. But there's some things that are at odds with his convictions. And in the midst of that, he, he, he gets hurled at him uh, insults as if he does not care for people. He knows that that's not true. He's content to endure that insult. But ultimately, that means that he doesn't get that promotion that he thought that he would be able to get. He's, he, he is even at one stage because uh, he's not seen as fit for, uh, for, for his role and his uh, not willing to bend on certain convictions is knocked down a level in his job and his pay is docked. Ultimately, he gets to a point where he loses his job, but Carl's okay. He's content with it. He's content clinging to the, uh, the, the, the uh, image of God in all people and the validity of the sufficiency of God's grace. And the question is, is it Hank or Carl who experiences God's power made perfect? And the, it's a trick question. It's both. See, it's not circumstances that determine how it is that you are navigating this stuff, how it is that you're identifying and acknowledging your own weaknesses and seeing God's power made perfect in them. But consider John. John clocks in, he clocks out, shows up to work every single day. He's really comfortable in his job. It pays the bills, maybe a little bit extra. He's real involved in... His, uh, his neighborhood and, and making sure that he's keeping up with the Joneses. His uh, yard doesn't look the best on the block, but just a little bit better than his next door neighbors. He goes to work, but then he comes back and shuts the garage door behind him and, and hides out in his house. There's a family there, but he doesn't talk to them much. He gets on his phone and, and the news cycle just seems to rattle him every single day. The pressures of this world just seem to weigh heavy on him. He's built in some unhealthy addictions, but he hides them well. Nobody really knows that they're there. There's a fear underlying everything that, that someone might think that I don't have it all figured out. and actually crushes him. He digs a hole of debt just to get that car so it doesn't look like he's out of place. In his community, 
He smiles in conversations with you. He's nice, but then he walks away grumbling, wishing he didn't have to have that conversation. For him, the only escape from this pressing sense of like inferiority and weakness is to fabricate in some way a smiley, grinny, uh, I figured it all out type of superiority. John never recognizes some of his weaknesses. See, it's not the existence of weaknesses that reveals God's power. It's not the fact that there are weaknesses that makes God's power perfect. Hank, Carl, and John all had weaknesses. All had insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. It's the acknowledgement of our weaknesses and seizing the opportunity in that acknowledgement to point to a perfect, powerful God that we see God's perfect power revealed. It's not in the presence or the existence of weaknesses. It's in the acknowledgement of them. It's in the owning of them. It's in the actually, I'm going to put those things out in front of me so that you can see, even in a small talk conversation, just how good my God is. I've seen, in trying to hold this tension of the authority of our message and the owning of our weaknesses, I I think the church, um, in our particular context, um, has actually landed on a couple of misconceptions I've seen floating around about how it is to really follow Jesus and boast in our weaknesses. I have four of them. I know that there's more, um, but I just want to touch on those real quick. Just to kind of set our uh, orientation of this right, and this will be kind of just by point of application for us. The first misconception is that <clears throat> insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities or disasters, they're not the norm for the Christian life. That's a horrible misconception. All of life for the Christian is cruciform. All of life for the Christian is taking up our cross. All of life for the Christian is seeing God's comfort in the midst of insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. All of life is cruciform. And so when we're insulted or we encounter hardships or persecutions or calamities, those are moments when we can look at God's power made perfect, not cower in fear in the midst of them. Misconception number two. Misconception number two is no one will come to Jesus if they don't see us as strong, unmoved, unempathetic, abrasive maybe even. If they don't see us as, as, as unable to be moved or phased by things, then nobody will come to Jesus. On the contrary, they will never see that God is strong if we don't actually own our weaknesses. If we don't actually carry ourselves with humility, if we don't actually demonstrate love and extend compassion, nobody's going to meet the God that we see in this word. And so, yeah, there's opportunity to speak truth to life, right? That is absolutely true, and Jesus did it constantly. But I think in our particular culture, 
in a lot of ways, demonstrating our own weaknesses and boasting and putting those on the forefront and demonstrating our humility and extending love and compassion is actually going to be the primary way that they'll see God is strong, not us. Misconception number three. I think a lot of times we tend to think that a movement of God requires a crowd It requires some sort of massive reach, social media influence, or celebrity figure to hold it up. I think God might do that in a lot of ways. In in some ways, I think even right here, right now, in our culture, there's a lot of pockets of our culture where we see some of that happening. The Asbury revivals, and then some celebrities seem to really grasp on to um, what seems to be a true gospel. But I think it's important for us to orient ourselves right to these things, that, that, that we tend to think that a movement of God is required in that. But in reality, oftentimes, those can tend to be like flare-ups. Like if you're cooking burgers on a grill and some of that grease catches fire and it flares up really big. What you don't see and what's not as significant and doesn't feel as exciting is those hot coals are burning underneath there. And they last a really long time, maybe even the next day. Right, And they're there consistently, and you don't want to get too close to them because they're, they're blazing hot. That's what's actually cooking the food on the grill. I had a pastor help demonstrate that illustration for me of like, we don't want to be uh, things that are just flaring up and bursting up, but hot coals burning over a long period of time, owning our weaknesses. It's not in some kind of big, massive thing that happens, but it's 40 students in Arkansas on a patio this past summer shouting at the top of their lungs, God, it's your power made perfect in my weakness. We're satisfied here with you. It's some of those students going on a mission trip just the last couple of weeks, making their faith their own and taking it to the world. It's hot coals burning. That's going to validate our message. Misconception number four, this is the last one. Weaknesses can be endured alone. I think most of us would say that, yeah, we, we, we know we need other people. I think if most of us here are honest, we've probably tried to take a fair swing at tackling our weaknesses on our own too. I know I have. I know there's been times when I should be leaning into other people and loving other people or maybe in some moments more significantly letting other people love me. Owning my weaknesses needs to mean that I'm acknowledging that I can't do this on my own. And we've set that as a banner over this church, over this local body of believers. We've said we want to be about broken people loving broken people. God gave Micah a vision for that. And hear me, I think we're doing that. I think there are opportunities, though, for some of us here to start really owning some of our weaknesses. To start boasting in our weaknesses. For some of us, they're going to be ever before us and really easy to identify. For others of us, you've got to do some hard work. But we can't do this alone. We're going to be broken people loving broken people. We're going to be people who boast in our weakness. 
Because it's actually through that that our message has authority and has power where we are. We're going to do that because we saw a Savior's broken body on a cross. And we saw grace poured out in that moment that was sufficient for us. We saw power at the cross that was perfected in the all-sufficient blood of our Savior. We saw power perfected in the resurrection. We see power perfected as Jesus sits right now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And we will one day see power perfected when He comes back and sets all things right. We're going to do this together. We're going to navigate this thing together. We're going to own our weaknesses together. We're going to be broken people, loving broken people together. You guys pray with me. Lord, I know all too quickly I cover up my weaknesses. I also know that in the last couple of weeks and as we prepare to step my family out to what you've called us to next, that there are countless weaknesses that have come to my mind. And Lord, you brought those to me to keep me from being conceited like you did Paul in the thorn of his flesh. You've brought those to mind and my weaknesses over the last four years not to bring shame, but for me to say, here I am. And in all of those weaknesses, God has demonstrated his power. And so, Lord, to whatever degree possible, would you help us to own our weaknesses? Would you help us to identify your power made perfect? Lord, I pray that those in this room would find the richness and the depth of contentment through weakness. This is no small thing. I don't know what weaknesses those in this room are facing right now. I don't know if it's calamities. I don't know if it's... Actually, I do know for some in this room it's calamities. For some in here it's insults. Somebody said something to them or about them this week. For others in this room it's hardships and it seems like you're never going to be able to get over that hump. Lord, would you meet us in this moment? And would you help us in bold steps? If this, is, if this be the first time that somebody believes by faith that your grace is sufficient for them, Lord, do that work. If this is the hundredth time, the thousandth time, the millionth time that we're reminded your grace is sufficient for us, would you do that work? But God, let us do it together. Let us do it through prayer. If there's some in this room that need to turn to the person next to them and pray, Lord, will we meet you in this moment? Own our weaknesses. Boast about our weaknesses. Put them out in front of us because it's only in that that we're strong and it's only in that that people are going to see you as strong. So we will boast. We will go on boasting. But we will boast in the Lord. Pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.